gotta tell somebody. This is the best thing I've ever seen. That. Let's talk about that. Let's you need this. That. Listen to this. Memorable and exciting. Well, then be less boring. I'm gonna tell everyone. Wait here. Quite a remarkable big daddy. Remarkable. Remarkable. Right? Welcome to Remarkable a podcast for B2B marketers that deconstructs the most iconic moments in film, television, pop culture, and advertising for a single purpose, to give you, the B2B marketer, the same storytelling techniques that the pros use. In each episode, you will learn techniques from Hollywood, Pixar, Marvel, and beyond, from Spielberg's hands to yours, bringing remarkable content ideas to you every single week. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. This is Remarkable. This week, we are talking about B2B marketing lessons from Mad Men with the help of special guest, VP and head of marketing at G2, Palmer, how are you? I'm doing great. Thanks for having me. Excited to have you on the show. Chat G2, chat Mad Men chat marketing, content, and everything in between. So let's get into it. Why did you choose Mad Men? You know, it's it's funny. When you invited me on the show, I, I took a look at the the website, and it's like I didn't even have to look. I was like, I want to do Mad Men. I just I was gravitationally pulled towards it. It's, it's one of my favorite shows. I, I think I'd put it on my kind of Mount Rushmore of TV shows of, of all time. But I think Something about the marketing thread really resonated with me. It's like, okay, this, you know, Mad Men is a far cry from from what we know of today as B2B marketing. A man like you, I'd follow into combat blindfolded. And I wouldn't be the first. Am I right, buddy? Let's take it a little slower. I don't want to wake up pregnant. There's this undercurrent of marketing that runs through the entire show. And just really thought it'd be fun to, to chat a little bit about that. Yeah, I I love what I love about Mad Men is that it made marketing cool in the same way that it made, you know, making meth cool for Breaking Bad, where mm-hmm. you sort of learn something about this and you're sort of like learning something about chemistry and about, you know, all that in Breaking Bad. And in this, you're learning about marketing. The greatest thing you have working for you is not the photo you take or the picture you paint. It's the imagination of the consumer. They have no budget. They have no time limit. And if you can get into that space, your ad can run all day. And like, it, it is cool. Like, people like it. We always joke everybody's a marketer at our companies because we get a lot of feedback. And I think this show made people like marketing in a way that, I don't know, is fun. And then, of course, there's all the other side side of it, which is maybe it taught everybody a little bit too much about marketing or maybe not enough. And we'll get into that here in a little bit. Yeah, I completely agree. And I, th- I think it, it put a spotlight on marketing that, that maybe hadn't, hadn't been there in pop culture in, in quite um, the same way. But I also think back, I mean, it, the show was like so obsessed with being, you know, accurate w- within sort of a historical context. And so I think back, it really did come along at a time when like advertising and marketing changed a ton. You think back to, you know, what it looked like before where there was, you know, just your newspaper ad with a list of prices and, and items. And then this whole idea of sort of positioning and really creating an emotional response to these products that they're putting in market. So I think it's it's interesting to think about it in that context, too. 
We're no longer allowed to advertise that Lucky Strikes are safe. Let's get out of here. The Federal Trade Commission and Reader's Digest have done you a favor. If you can't make those health claims, neither can your competitors. This is the greatest advertising opportunity since the invention of cereal. So zooming out here, tell us a little bit about your role as VP and head of marketing at G2. Yeah. So I've, I've been with G2. I'm, I'm actually, today is my two-year mark on the, on the nose. So joined G2 originally as the, the VP of, of brand and comms and kind of built out that function. So run a, a brand marketing sort of in-house agency, designers, developers, copywriters were really responsible for all, a lot of the marketing that we do to the, the software vendors who have profiles on G2. I also have a, an events team, so we go out and run internal, external, trade show type events. And then lastly, a comms function there, so PR, social media, all of those things. I spent my first, let's call it a uh, year and a half at, at G2 doing that, and then jumped into the head of marketing role at the beginning of this year. And so now I manage our revenue marketing team, so demand gen, customer marketing, some marketing ops, as well as our product marketing, product and partner marketing team. So... We've got a small but mighty team across all those functions. And uh, our, our focus is really, like I mentioned earlier, on the, the software vendors who are on G2, who are essentially looking to reach software buyers as they're learning more about different solutions across G2.com. And don't we all go there all the time? I feel like I'm on G2 every day. I've told you this before many times, but I feel like it's one of the places that there's just, oh, every day there's some company I got to check out, some company I got to figure out who their competitors are, some company I need to know a little bit more about. And of course, when I'm looking for software, it's, it's the place I go. So it's so fun having you on the show. And truly, you are a, a content aficionado an expert. So excited to get into all that. Meredith, mm -hmm. what the heck is Mad Men? So Mad Men is a drama series. And it's about a prestigious New York ad agency called Sterling Cooper in the 1960s. So it's a period piece. And it focuses on debauched ad executive Don Draper. Love the word debauched. There's always a name in every partnership that defines who they are. In the case of Sterling Cooper, Draper Price, would you say that's Donald Draper? Yes. But it also stars Elizabeth Moss, Christina Hendricks, January Jones, and more. And the series, it was created by Matthew Weiner and produced by Lionsgate Television, eventually picked up by AMC it aired from 2007 to 2015, and according to the pilot episode, the name Mad Men is short for Madison Men, or in other words, the men that worked on Madison Avenue in New York City. And it's funny, one of the one of the folks that I know that's come on the podcast before, Tom Buda, his dad was a madman. He was one of the people on Madison Avenue. No he way. actually worked in that. And so, you know, there's, I mean, this was real. Like, this happened, not quite exactly how it is in, in the show, of course, but it is real. And how did they make this show? Mm. So what's interesting, I had no idea this was the case, but production-wise, it should have been an absolute failure. Um, so Matthew Weiner wrote the script for Mad Men in 2001. It wasn't picked up until about four years later because his agents basically, like, once they eventually read it, like three or four months later, they told him not to send it anywhere. They were like, this isn't going to pick, be picked up. Comedy write, writing is like what's popular right now. So it wasn't until his manager's assistant, so a relatively low-level employee, gave the script to AMC, which at the time was like super low status, no money at the time. They picked it up in 2005. 
Besides that, this woman named Christina Wayne was hired as the executive of scripted programming. But another AMC exec named Rob Scorcher was like, she had never done a thing in her life in the terms of being an executive. So she was like not not set up to do well in this job. So she's a newbie. And then AMC ended up self-financing the pilot for a little over $3 million. And they used the crew that was kind of like hanging out, the crew from The Sopranos, because they were in their off-season for the moment. So they were like, we're going to use you. You know, we've got you on hand. And they cast all unknown actors at the time. John Hamm, who ended up playing Don Draper, was at the total bottom of the list. I know you're all feeling the darkness here today, but there's no reason to give in. No matter what you've heard, this process will not take years. In my heart, I know we cannot be defeated because there is an answer that will open the door. There is a way around this system. This is a test of our patience and commitment. One great idea can win someone over. But the one person rooting for him was the writer, Matthew Weiner, And so that's kind of like how he ended up getting the job. And... To add to it all, like even for auditions, some of the cast hadn't even been written into scenes yet. So they just like cobbled together some scenes for the sake of the audition. Matthew Weiner even said like, it had been years since I wrote anything in the pilot. And all of a sudden I needed a scene by tomorrow for a character who only has three lines. So that's all to say that Mad Men had no business averaging 2 million viewers over its run, winning 16 Emmys, five Golden Globes, a Peabody Award, and making Lionsgate about $26 million a year. It's incredible. And I love that John Hamm's story is so intertwined with this because he was just a working actor for a long time, much older when he got his start. And obviously, you know, the rest is history. It's so cool. Palmer, anything to add there? Any any thoughts on the making of or or about? No, uh, I mean, it's it's a really fascinating. I mean, I, I I love the fact that most of the actors are sort of unknowns until until the show. It, it like really allows one of the what I think is kind of the, the strong points of the show of like the characters to sh- just shine. The reason you haven't felt it is because it doesn't exist. What you call love was invented by guys like me to sell nylons. Like it's not like outsized personalities. They just feel very lived in, and I love that aspect of it. But I and it also just kind of goes to I was. I can't remember if it was an oral history of Mad Men or The Sopranos that I read a few months ago, but it talked about how Matthew Weiner, like, you know, was was writing the script on his, you know, off time at The Sopranos where he was where he was a writer and just had it in his back pocket, you know, and just like kept trying to get it made, get it made. No one was interested. And then, boom, this happens and it becomes one of the most successful shows of all time. So sort of a a lesson in per- persistence there. And a lesson, a lesson. In And I think the belief that you, mm. something should exist and like this is, I mean, it's one of the takeaways for me for Mad Men, which we'll get into much later. But this idea that as a creator, you just have to believe that something should exist. And like so many times I'll have, a, we'll be talking with like our customers or someone who wants to make a video series or something like that. And they're like, well, there's so much stuff out there. Like, why should we make this? And I'm like, you have to believe that this thing should exist. Like you should have the conviction that the audience that you're serving, that people aren't serving them the right way. I don't think there's much else to do here, but call it a day. Gentlemen, thank you for your time. Is that all? You're a non-believer. Why should we waste time on Kabuki? And like, whether it's, 
you know, something that is ridiculously nuanced like this topic or something that's much more, you know, popular culture. If people stopped making movies about superheroes, I don't know where we'd all be. But like, I think that you just have to have that conviction to want to make something. And, you know, when I first watched this, I was like, this is freaking boring. And this was like a long time ago. I was like, this is like a boring show. And I remember watching the first few episodes of The Wire and I was like, I don't even understand what is happening here. But when you feel the like totality of what this becomes and the characters and how nuanced they are, it it brings the entire thing to life. Yeah, and I, I love how, the you know, the story you're telling of like, well, no one's going to want to make that. It's not comedy or whatever's in vogue in the moment. And I think too too often we fall into that that trap and the same thinking of, well, this is popular, so we're just going to keep doing more of that and more of that and not sort of that going against the grain or, you know, zagging when everyone else is, is zigging. And I think that that is sort of a testament to that thinking, especially as it relates to creativity. You need to decide what kind of company you want to be. Comfortable and dead or risky and possibly rich. Yeah, I and I think that, like, if you want to make the thing that's super popular right now and you want to fit in, then that's fine. But if you have some story that, you know, has never been told before that you want to bring in for some reason, like, got to ignore the haters a little bit there. PR people understand this, but they can never execute it. If you don't like what is being said, change the conversation. Especially when it's a bunch of studio execs who are looking to, you know, try to make make something that is already popular, right? That's what they're, a lot of them are searching for. So why do you think this show is, is remarkable? What is it that stands out to you, Palmer? Yeah, I touched on it a, a little bit, but for me, it's this, it's kind of four things that come together to make this just great recipe of a show. It's it's a drama, no, no doubt, but it's also really funny. It's got the, the, I mean, there's laugh out loud moments. It's got that good blending of, of comedy and drama there. What do I care? I got a million of them. A million. Good. I guess I'm lucky you work for me. I feel bad for you. I don't think about you at all. And then I love just how that sort of attention to detail comes out, whether it's through the period through the costumes, really just like the very, very small elements there that I, you know, you can read about just like how much attention to detail went into that. And that really shines through it. And then the last piece to me, I mean, those are all sort of like that setting it up. And then it's really just the characters and you get so invested of like, I just want to hang out with these people. And like, I, I, I want to see what's where this is going. And, and to your point, I can understand you know, first couple of episodes, why why do I care? This is kind of boring. Not a whole lot is happening. And it's it's definitely not Breaking Bad. It's not that, like, giant cliffhanger show. There's a few moments of that throughout it. But it's really just you get so invested in the relationships and the characters and, like, what's going to happen that it may not be happening fast, but you're, sti- you're still so kind of edge of your seat to see what happens. And why are you doing this to me? Because you're being very demanding for someone who has no other choice. Dazzle me. Fine. How much you want? How much you got? And that to me was what really, you know, did it. I, th- I also think that the, you know, the writing on the show was pretty, pretty incredible. There's some just like great lines and some really poignant moments throughout it. For me, which is part of the reason why I don't think like the pilot like jumped out when I first saw it was because 
they were my new work colleagues, right? I was getting to know them. Mm. It was the first day. And, you know, Peggy comes in and she's new and it's like all these new people, right? But it's a series. It's not a episodic comedy, right? So they grow. They grow up. They get promoted. They change jobs. They change roles. The things that they're dealing with, Don has this massive secret that he's keeping and you get to see that sort of play out in real time and it's a super interesting like emotive part of the part of the story it has come to my attention completely by accident that donald draper here is not who he says he is his real name is dick whitman but dick whitman died in korea 10 years ago it stands to reason that he is a deserter at the very least and who knows what else and i think that because it's a it's set in a workplace and because it's set in a workplace many many years of a time that we didn't really understand but there's still those human you know those human centric struggles that we all go through like it's really exciting that way and because they're marketers and they're thinking of marketing stuff that as a marketer of course like you love that part i i one time i i was in scotland and i remember we were talking to the docent. My grandfather was Scottish. And so my mother was around a lot of Scottish people growing up. And and so she asked the docent, she's like, what, hey, what, how is like Braveheart thought of here? And he's like, well, he's like, they wouldn't have painted their faces. William Wallace was way taller. It was actually about like, you know, Northerners, not Southerners. The Battle of Stirling Bridge was on a bridge. So with all that to say, it's an 11 out of 10. We love it. And like, that's kind of how I feel about Mad Men or, or when we talk about marketing is like, you know, I could poke holes in a million things, but ultimately like its accuracy is close enough that you really feel like the stuff that they're saying is smart and earned and interesting. And you actually can take real marketing lessons from some of the stuff that they say. And that, that to me is like, you know, keep them laughing, keep them learning. Right. And, and that's what this show does. Yeah, it, it does a, an amazing job of that. And it's just, it, it. I come back to it in a lot of ways. It's, I mean, even with that slow kind of nature of it, I think after I finished watching it, I rewatched it a year or two ago, and, and uh, I was actually looking up trying to figure out when that when that was. It's no longer on Netflix. It's only on AMC Plus now, which I don't think anyone has. So there could be a reason that that Mad Ben is not, uh, you know, top of the, uh, the discor internet discourse list right now. But when it was on, you know, Netflix, I, I finished it and the rewatch and was like, I want to start it right back over. I just love spending time in this place with these people. And I, I don't, you know, it's interesting to think back of when it was made. And there's always been, there were some very popular workplace comedies at the time, you know, thinking of The Office and, and, and a few others. But there, I, like Mad Men was sort of unique in that regard from from like a, a drama that was set there. So I I, I like your pinning it of that it's the you know you you open the pilot watch it and it's that's really your first day of at the new job now this is the executive floor it should be organized but it's not so you'll find account executives and creative executives all mixing together please don't ask me the difference <laughs> great hopefully if you follow my lead you can avoid some of the mistakes i've made here hello john like that one and that's never, no one ever, you know, not to say they always have to be bad. They're always just kind of a little bit of, you're getting used to how things work here. You're getting to know folks. You're getting to see where this is going. And so looking at it, that framing is really, you know, puts it in a new light for me. I remember my brother saying, Ian, just trust me. You just got to keep going. 
Like, just trust me. It's slow. I mean, it is. And like you said, like, it's a slow show. Like, there's not, you know, murderers at the end of every season. There's not, you know, an alien coming in. And it's like, it is It is a slow, methodical pace. And it lives in the best marketing moments. It lives in the pitch room. What price would we pay? What behavior would we forgive? If they weren't pretty, if they weren't temperamental, if they were beyond our reach and a little out of our control, would we love them like we do? Jaguar. At last, something beautiful you can truly own. And that part is so fun to me as a marketer because it it heightened this moment that is actually real. Like, that's the thing. Like, obviously, it's very real back then in the 60s, but it's still real. I mean, how much time have you, you know, like one of my friends works for Salesforce. I remember if Mark is seeing a deck, the CEO of Salesforce, like, there's a lot more time and effort put into a deck that Mark's going to see, right? And it's like, you got one slide out of like 78 and that slide, you know, it's got to be whatever. That is real. It is real to be in the pitch meeting. It is real when you're pitching something new. And Don is such an incredible, like, you know, pitcher of ideas. And like, gosh, if you could bring him in and pitch for your B2B marketing team on your campaigns, like you'd get all the budget in the world. Oh, man, I I love it. It's just, and you even see it in some of the pitches where, you know, Don's not there or they, you know, he he punts it to somebody else to do. And there's this like level of disappointment or maybe he's off, you know, passed out drunk somewhere. And so like they've got, they've got to improvise and everyone's like, how are we going to do this without Don? It's sort of like the, you know, the Bulls suiting up without without Michael Jordan. And this is, I, I don't know, I love, I love all of the pitches that they do because they feel I mean, there, you know, there, there's a Hollywood part of, of some of them of, of just how good he is at them, but there's a lot of them that don't go well or they get rejected or they don't win the business. I think, and I think people might think, that he died. Maybe he did, and he went to heaven. Maybe that's what this feels like. It's a little morbid. Well, heaven's a little morbid. How do you get to heaven? Something terrible has to happen. We don't want that in the ad. And I think that that is, you know, something that is as great as the, you know, Carousel Kodak moment is, the the ones they lose or the client storms out of are, are just as, I don't know, just as meaningful as a viewer when I see those. And, and frankly, as, as a marketer, particularly resonant as well, because we know that, you know, a lot of those, no matter how good our pitch is, sometimes we we just get a hard no. And I, and I like the framing of, you know, there's obviously the agency trying to win business, and that's literally what's happening here. But I like your framing of no matter whether you work in marketing, finance, whatever, there's moments when you've got to come to the senior leadership team and you've got to present your idea or present your work or present this project that we're doing. And and I just think that that, to me, for anyone, whether you're a marketer or not, it just feels like that's something that uh, you could identify with or you can be like, I've been in that. I've been in that seat before. I've been trying to get my point across there. I've I've dealt with a really difficult person across the table. On our prep call, you, you had mentioned that you almost think of Don as more of a positioning person than an advertiser. Can you expand on that? Yeah. I mean, I think it's 
I, I think that going back to that change that was happening in advertising at the time, it hadn't just been very much like you put your product out here, you tell folks what it does and how much it costs. And like Don's, you know, secret sauce is you, you, you create emotion, you create feeling around these products and you create that resonance. And like, that's how you went over, you know, not only minds, but, but hearts too. And, and I think that that's what he's, he's really good at. I mean, the, the, the Kodak carousel one is just the, the best example of that, of like, it's, it's, it's just about a, a feeling. It takes us to a place where we ache to go again. It's not called the wheel. It's called the carousel. It can get to a, to a point where it's a, a little bit cynical. He's like, you know, what is what is happiness? Happiness is happiness is just a moment before you need more happiness. It's true, but I don't know if it's if it, it sends necessarily the right message. But he's he's really good in that that regard. And uh, I, I think that there's this this slickness, but like sincerity to a lot of the marketing work that they they do, and that's really you know stuck with me. But I, I think you're right, like. Don comes in as sort of this, he's the pitch guy, he positions it, and then it's sort of like, he's the poetry, but then kind of the prose takes over after that, where you've got to actually figure out, well, where are we putting these ads? Like, what what, what TV programs are we going to be running those ads on? What do they look like? And they don't delve into as much of that in the show, but, you know, through different characters, through sort of the conflict there, you can see how that actually comes to life. Yeah, it paints two sides of marketing that are really funny looking at it now, which is sort of the copy being so sensationalized and so important. It's your job. I give you money, you give me ideas. And you never say thank you. That's what the money is for. You're young, you will get your recognition. And honestly, it is absolutely ridiculous to be two years into your career and counting your ideas. Which probably was more accurate back then because you re needed really good copy. And the other side of being like the execution of getting the copy out, the distribution piece, which back then was extremely simple, right? Where you just had newspapers and magazines and, and then TV and radio. And it's like, there wasn't that much other stuff you could do. And then obviously like in person, like activations and billboards and all that sort of stuff. But at the end of the day, like the execution part for us which is maybe the, the one of the marketing lessons not to take from Mad Men, is that you can spend weeks and months and years crafting the perfect copy. But in our world, it's going to get A-B tested, it's going to get split tested, and the distribution of getting that out in front of people in some type of, instead of being it sequenced, instead of it being linear, instead of it being like where you have so much control of how this is presented to people. Now, and there's obviously still a ton of that in B2B, but now it is, you have to know that that piece of copy that you spend so much time writing, that might not be the first thing they see about your brand. That might be the 500. That might be after they've already talked to a salesperson. It might be before. So there's so much more complexity to marketing now, whereas back then, I mean, it's, it's obviously simplified. And you think of how much we invest in like our data teams and our and our digital like growth marketers and all those people that are about how this is being served. But I, th I think there's some like poetic part of this that it's like at the end of the day, like there's static images, there's video images, there's audio. And you know, those three things kind of don't change. 
Yeah, I mean, it's it's you know the the channels, the vehicles that that we go out on obviously have evolved a lot, but it starts with like the kernel of the same things of of there's this there's this visual, there's a moving image, and there's some copy that goes along with it. And I, as you were saying that, I was thinking back. There's a scene in the show where I think they're trying to win the Burger Chef business, and so Peggy like goes out to one of the Burger Chef restaurants, and she's going to do you know kind of a focus group of of whoever comes in, and she's talking to like a mom who is brought her kids in to eat and you know they look tired it's been a long day it's clearly like a weekday they got out from school and she's like trying to hone in on like what are the emotions that you're feeling like what are what what does it really resonate with you and she's like i came here cuz cuz we're hungry and the food's affordable you know and it's like okay that's that's like sometimes that is that that's sort of the balance that we're all trying to to weave here of like you want that emotional connection, but you've also your product's got to deliver on that that basic thing. And so, sort of in a B two B context, it's like sure, we want to have that aspirational element. What if there was another table where everybody gets what they want when they want it? It's bright and clean, and there's no laundry, no telephone, and no TV. And we can have the connection that we're hungry for. There may be chaos. Well, but there's family supper at Burger Chef. But then we've also got to be able to just simply deliver on kind of a functional ROI level as well. And there's, there's moments of that even in the, even in the primitive and, and very B2C world there in Mad Men. I think another thing just to note about Dawn and about a bunch of the people, obviously, in that time, and there's so much, like, misogyny, and there's so much, you know, racial tension from the time and all that stuff. Well, you're in the city now. Wouldn't be a sin for us to see your legs. If you pull your waist in a little bit, you might look like a woman. Is that all, Mr. Draper? Hey, I'm not done here. I'm working my way up. That'll be all. Sorry about Mr. Campbell here. He left his manners back at the fraternity house. That obviously happens in the in the story. Don obviously being an alcoholic and having a relationship. I shouldn't say struggles, but bombing his own relationships. That I think that one of the things that's just important to note here is like audience always forgives a genius. And we don't really care if Don ruins his life, but we care if he keeps doing genius stuff. And I think it's just an important thing to remember in your storytelling that like you're Characters don't have to always be the perfect character for it to be compelling. Take responsibility for your failure. That account was handed to you and you made nothing of it because you have no character. You don't have any character. You're just handsome. Stop kidding yourself. And this is like, you know, pretty simplistic. But I think that like Don's a good example of that is like his edges, him being a contradiction, right? Like that I read this once that every great character is a contradiction where it's like they do something that they tell other people not to do, et cetera. And like Don is that way, right? He tries to perfect this pitch so much and he inherently is very broken. So uh, I think that's just an important thing to note here. Yeah, he's not necessarily someone you'd hold up as like, this is the paragon of of, of work-life balance or how you can be a, a great dad and husband and, and and business person. It's definitely not that. But I think from from a character development standpoint, it's it's true to life. You have to imagine that there were folks, and I, I think there were roughly, you know, reading some of the history, there were some some folks that his character was like roughly based on, and there, there's there's truth there. And I, I think back to 
you know, I remember reading the the Steve Jobs biography that Walter Isaacson wrote a few years ago and really always love the work that Apple's done that, that you know, clearly, you know, a genius. Uh, but then you read that and you're like, man, he, he had some, he had some rough edges. He was not a, a great person in, in all of these regards. And so you, it, it really does sort of put a certain lens on it. And that to your point, the, you have to take the good with the bad, but at the same time, you can cut through a lot of that noise from a character standpoint if you're if you're able to show that this person clearly has this this zone of genius that they're just so good at that you can't deny it. You're on top and you don't have enough. You're happy because you're successful for now. But what is happiness? It's a moment before you need more happiness. I won't settle for 50% of anything. I want 100%. You're happy with your agency? You're not happy with anything. You don't want most of it. You want all of it. And I won't stop until you get all of it. Another thing that really jumps out to me is just give the people what they want, right? And it's like, we want to watch Don pitch stuff, right? Because we want to actually experience his ideas. And that's like, for me, I think this show is just one of those good reminders that like, if you were to go tell your friend about a show and like, what are your favorite parts about it? What are your favorite scenes? The vast majority of those scenes are going to be him pitching stuff. And there's obviously much more emotional scenes and there's, you know, starting own agency. And like, I always like, I love the fight scene where the guy fights. Oh my God, what's his name? Where he fights Pete? Yeah, where he fights Pete. Thank you. Where he fights Pete. Mr. Campbell. You and I are going to address that insult. Are you kidding me? No, you're a grimy little pimp. As soon as I raise my hands, I warn you, it shall be too late to run. And they just immediately run over and close the blinds. Like, there's scenes in there that are, like, absolutely, like, iconic, obviously. But at the end of the day, him pitching is where the show shines. And, and you know, just a reminder to give the people what they want. Yeah, I think it's him him pitching and then him drinking with Roger are the two. Like yes. it's just like, okay, it's gonna be one of those things. You don't know how to drink your whole generation. You drink for the wrong reasons. My generation, we drink because it's good. Because it feels better than unbuttoning your collar. Because we deserve it. We drink because it's what men do. You're gonna have this really emotionally resonant moment, and then you're just gonna you're gonna laugh your ass off when Roger's there and they're drinking together. So it's it's got a good balance there, but the, again, they they do a great job of weaving those like B and C storylines in as well. So like Peggy may have something going on, or, or like building towards something, and I just love the the interplay across all of those is is another aspect of what makes the show work really well for me. I'll say one more thing too, with this, which is uh, another really popular thing. There's a lot of nostalgia in this show. It's something we've talked about a bunch of times on on Remarkable. But because they're using real products, like because they use Coke, because they use Heinz beans, because they use Burger Chef, because they use Hilton and Lucky Strike and Jaguar. Every agency you're going to meet with feels qualified to advertise the Hershey bar because the product itself is one of the most successful billboards of all time. Because they're real it's cool to see an ad campaign for something that's like a super common household brand. And I think it's really fun to see that stuff. And as a marketer, it's really interesting. But I think for the, it's really easy to connect with that as a user. So like another piece of advice for, you know, a marketing thing in your own marketing is like pulling in nostalgia is always important, but just like 
giving the the listener or the viewer some signposts that they're familiar with will go a long way. I, I completely agree. And I, I actually thought about that earlier as I was kind of prepping for the show. And I Googled, I just wanted to know all of the different accounts that that, that they had. Yeah. And 538 actually has a list of them on the site. It's like 84 accounts that the various, you know, the <laughs> the the various forms of, of Sterling Cooper, you know, had. And, and to your point, there are a couple fake ones in there, but it's only like five or six. And it was probably for, you know, brand safety reasons that they went there of like something scandalous happens. And of course, you know, Ford isn't going to let their, you know, product be part part of that. It, it helps you tether to, to something, to a different era I think nostalgia is a part of it, but as someone who wasn't alive during during the the '60s, for me, it was almost like this exploration of of history, a, a time to kind of li- live in that. And I, and I think using real products, the um, real elections, and that's the other thing. Is there's a lot of like real world events that's sort of how they earmark it because I believe the it starts kind of 1960, 61, and kind of ends right at 1970. It's fun. It doesn't cloud the mind with. I don't know, issues. And it's catchy. It's catchy like it gets in your head and makes you want to blow your brains out. The president is a product. Don't forget that. And so you have JFK, you have moon landing. There's all these different like kind of mile markers to help you orient around, which I think just as a viewer is a nice way in that helps it feel a lot more tethered. So I think as a, as a creator, that remains true as well. Okay, let's switching gears to G2's marketing. Obviously, you're a marketplace. Tons of people go to you every day for essentially content, right? But what is your content strategy? How do you view content at G2? Yeah, being a two-sided marketplace, it becomes, I was talking to somebody about this just a few days ago, it becomes a really interesting kind of way that we have things structured. So we actually, you know, serve on on one end of the marketplace, software buyers, you know, folks like like all of us who are out there using different software products, we want to learn about it. And we have a very particular content strategy and content approach for folks like that. The, the, the kernel of it is the the sort of voice of customer reviews that that bubble up and and really provide that that way in there. But from sort of a more technical SEO or content marketing perspective, we're really trying to to drive those folks through this to to the site through you know relevant keywords relevant relevant blog topics relevant categories like we've you know got gosh 4000 close to 4000 like different software categories on the site and so that's just helping folks contextualize and and understand the the landscape there so for me i think about the the buyer software buyer content strategy as sort of our foundation like that's what powers the flywheel and brings folks in it's largely driven by our marketplace by sort of the seo and then you know some of the the content marketing that that goes with that as we think about the other side of our marketplace the software sellers the software vendors who are there the the folks that that my team um, is doing most of our marketing tor- towards our strategy evolves. It's like we're not we don't do much SEO there. We do do like thought leadership, but it looks a little bit different than what it's going to be for a software buyer. We do a lot of webinars or what we call office hours, where we're just kind of like walking through the some some real life use cases. And then we do the occasional real, you know, deep dive report. We do have a market research team here at G2 that does a lot of like maintaining the taxonomy, all of the different categories, but then it's also kind of pulling out insights of what they're seeing happening there. And 
we like to make sure that our software vendors know about those those insights. So the the short answer, like what is our content strategy? It's sort of like, it depends. If we're thinking about software buyers or thinking about software sellers, we're going to go a very different route or think about those from even from a channel lens in a very different way. Yeah. So from a software seller perspective, that's more of like the B2B sort of motion, right? Would be... It, 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 Exactly. A software buyer could be anyone. It's more of like consumer-like. A software seller is going to be the sales forces of the world, startup or large software companies who are out there trying to reach those software buyers. And what would be a way that you think about like measuring ROI from that like B2B side on the seller side? Yeah. I mean, that's where it's it's pretty easy for us on the, the buyer side. We can look at traffic and volume and measure it there. It's a fraction. You know, the traffic doesn't become a great measurement for what, what we're doing on the, on the B2B side. So what we really try and do there from an ROI perspective is look at the entire customer journey. Oftentimes, if you're a software seller, you're going to go claim your profile. You're going to start building, adding screenshots, building some pricing information, just helping folks understand your, your profile. And then where we start measuring ROI is what happens kind of after that. Did they did they engage with one of the email you know nurtures that we sent out? Did they register for that webinar? Did they come to a particular event that we held? And and that's where we try and really hone in our marketing influence is what we would call it. And and sort of like what touch points did we see along that journey? And and for us, it's less about pointing to one and more about what what's the combination of those different touch points and. Where does that lead us to? And so that's typically how how we would we would measure it, and we guide a lot of our content creation by seeing kind of what's what's working there, but equally so, like what's what's lacking, and that's a lot of our our case studies and, and some of the more customer focused marketing and content that we create. We talk to our sales team a lot about like where are the gaps, like what 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 do we not have a good proof point for, and so that guides a lot of our content as well. So, you know, sort of a taking taking an ROI question there, but I think you can't just look at what's working. You've got to also see like, well, what's missing and what do we not have that could that could supplement this? Yeah, it's a great point. I think it's one of the hard parts about sort of figuring out ROI from content is uh, a lot of the times there's things that you're not making that you're evaluating, right? And the costs are wildly different and the way, like, you know, it goes back to like, do you believe that this thing should exist, right? For a lot of content. It's like, do you believe that we need to be educating or communicating with our our prospects and our customers in this way to achieve results? And like starting at that point and working our way back into, okay, well, what would it cost to produce this and how would we produce it rather than the other way around, which is sort of like when you're buying ads on Google and Facebook, you can work the opposite way <laughs> backward, right? You can work the ROI calculation the reverse way. Whereas with content, you sort of have to start with the purpose for doing it and what what are the outcomes that you seek to have. Yeah. And I think for us too, one of the things I, I think about a lot is just being particular and thoughtful and informed on the the different types of channels and types of content that we create, knowing that we are this two-sided marketplace. We've got software buyers who are kind of powering it. We don't need to be active on on every single channel that's out there, but what's going to be the most effective for our audience? What's going to be the most resonant? And how do we double down there versus sort of chasing our tails by trying to to do too much? So I think it's it's keeping a, a, a good balance there. Uh, we were 
was having this conversation with our social team recent, recently. I mean, obviously, like LinkedIn's a great channel for us, but we've been like, ah, oh, Twitter, Threads, like what's, you know, is this, is Threads really going to gonna supplant Twitter? Do we need to be like mapping out a strategy there? And, you know, and, and the conversation always comes around, well, TikTok's really popular. Like, should we have more TikTok content? And it's like, well, you know, we're... We're B two B marketers. We've got a software marketplace. We're we're, we're very text driven, and I'm just like TikTok isn't going to be a priority for us. But that that's where you know the Twitter versus Threads one becomes like a more interesting sort of breakdown of like, well, you know, is one of these gonna gonna win out, and should we have a plan and strategy for how we're gonna gonna win there? And that's just a small microcosm of sort of the the broader content questions I think that we have. Do you have any favorite pieces of content that you've done over the past couple of years? That we've done, I mean, I, I we do an annual software buyer behavior report. Uh, we just put ours out in, I guess, beginning of June. This year, we surveyed like 1,200 global software buyers uh, across the globe and tried to really just get a sense of, you know, how are folks thinking about budgets? How are they thinking about software buying? How are they thinking about different categories? And a lot of, a lot of great insights, some of them a little bit surprising. I think that software buyers might be a little bit more bullish on budget and spending than a lot of us B2B marketers are. It's a good thing, a glimmer of hope, but I just don't know that we're all seeing it day to day. So that, that's that's a big one. And there's just a lot of different um, insights the AI shown through on that one. And then also just you know, time to ROI is another big one as well. That there's just you can you can see it no matter how you slice it. Whether you're talking to an enterprise buyer or a you know startup buyer, they, there's a lot of common threads there. One of our big annual things we do G2 Best Software, where we aggregate you know the past year in reviews and try and highlight some of the the big winners at both like a you know, broader software level and then specific categories. And and that is in of itself like very algorithmic. So it's not like this this big content pull on our side, but the way that we package and take it to market, it becomes almost a content play for us. And then we've got a in, in another month or two, a state of software report that we're going to put out and try and do quarterly, just kind of showing some insights of what's happening across all those categories on G2. What insights can we glean from the actual reviews being left on G2. So those are all, there's a couple of things that we're working on that I'm excited from a content perspective. We've also really invested over the past year or two in thought leadership, getting some, you know, outside experts to come in, write for us, do, do kind of a blog series there. And then one of the more interesting things that that we do is that we have a data solutions product where we aggregate and sell a lot of the backend data that we have on, on G2. So you can understand if you're an investor, I need to know what's happening in the project management category. And, and you can get some very high level insights on that. Well, we've partnered with a couple of those you know, investors as well as consultants to put together some, some thought leadership. So we did one with BCG, we did one with Iconic, done some, some interesting just kind of, hey, let's, let's surf our data and see what sort of interesting insights we can get out of it. And, and for me, that's where a lot of the best content comes from, of taking proprietary data and doing storytelling with that data and then finding an audience that's, that's going to really resonate with. And yeah, they're sort of like recommendations for how folks should be thinking about content or, or maybe something that you're working on and you're excited about or things that you want to invest content-wise? 
Yeah, yeah. One of the areas that 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 we stay, you know, focused on is from the buyer side, especially that that, that SEO focus. And I, I think a lot of you f- you're hearing a lot in the age of AI of like, oh, SEO is going to be meaningless. You're not going to really, you know, you're not going to need that anymore. And I don't think that that's fully true. I think it may change, and how we think about digesting and discovering information will change. But I. I've, you know, had, I guess what I would call the pleasure of working for two or three companies that are very, very strong in the SEO side. And so I'm, I'm not a technical SEO expert, and I've really benefited from learning about how you kind of marry the art and science of like what's good content that's going to turn into great, great SEO. And that's something that I would just challenge any any marketer to to think more about. And And I think a lot of times... We're thinking about it the wrong ways. You think about SEO is just kind of listicles and like, you know, we're going to put out the stuff that's just high volume, but not a whole lot of value. And I think the perfect marriage happens when it's, you know, blending that art and science there as well. So, yeah, that's that's something that, uh, I you know, I think folks should kind of be mindful of. And uh, I don't know, I, I think that that test and learn approach um, going beyond that on marketing is really what I see as the, the proof point and the, the strong suit. Cool. Any other final thoughts on Mad Men? Yeah, I wish I could bring Mad Men and G2 together. I, I wonder what Don Draper's pitch for, for G2 would have would have been. But Why, no, he wouldn't I, say flywheel. I know that. He'd say yeah. carousel. Hey, so. and, and listen, <laughs> yeah, he'd say carousel, I'd, not flywheel, that's for sure. I also think about the the episode where they bring the IBM computer in and like everyone gets gets freaked out because it's like they think it's going, I mean, there's somebody, what's the guy like st- stabs himself, I think, in that episode. It's more of a cosmic disturbance. Uh, This machine is intimidating because it contains infinite quantities of information, and that's threatening because human existence is finite. And uh, freaked out. It's kind of what we're doing with AI right now. Like, AI is going to replace marketers. So uh, let's all, like, take a deep breath. Technology evolves and we'll evolve with it. Maybe that's my lesson. I love it. Palmer, so awesome chatting with you. For our listeners, you can go to g2.com. You can also, if your company doesn't have a, a really awesome profile, like you're crazy, so go go do that. And when you're buying software, go check out G2 because it's it's a great place to go. Palmer, any any final thoughts? Anything to plug? No, thanks for having me on. I echo what you just said. If you're a, a, a B2B software seller out there, we'd love to have you on, on G2. And if you're not, we know no matter who you are, you're out there buying software. So please visit G2 and fi- find the best product for your needs. Awesome. Thanks again and take care. Well, that's it for today. I hope you got some good ideas for your B2B content. Thank you for listening to Remarkable. I'm Ian Faison, CEO of Caspian Studios. Remarkable is created by the team at Caspian Studios, B2B podcast as a service. Caspian also creates fiction series for B2B companies. So if you want a business thriller, you can learn more at caspianstudios.com. Hollywood style storytelling for B2B. And in today's episode, you heard from myself, Ian Faison, and Meredith O'Neill, senior producer here at Caspian Studios. Remarkable was produced this week by Meredith O'Neill, mixed by Scott Goodrich, and our theme song is Solomon by Falak. Be remarkable and rise above the noise.